go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to read the first 11 verses this morning. After having uh, a week on uh, Jonah, finishing up Jonah last week, we we're jumping back into Hebrews again today. We're in the midst of uh, the middle of an argument, so uh, it's going to take a minute to catch you up to speed again from where we left off last time. But let's, uh, let's start with the reading of God's Word uh, again in verse 1. Hear the Word of the Lord. Therefore, <clears throat> while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that your spirit would soften our hearts this morning as we seek to submit ourselves to your word, uh, to you as our Lord and as our King. We pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, the glory of your kingdom and the glory of your rest. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you've heard it probably a hundred times, if not more. Life is a journey, not a destination. You know, that, that saying has actually been around since the 1920s, but it came into provenance again by the millennial generation who seemed to be posting it everywhere uh, from day to day as a quote to live by. Of course, most people use that expression to mean, you know, let's, let's enjoy every moment because we, we really can't determine our outcome anyway as far as those things go, so let's not be too stressed or too worried about uh, the end result, but let's, let's at least enjoy the moment. But others have used that same expression to, to say in some way or another, there is no destination. It's all about the journey. This is all there is to life, so buckle up and enjoy your ride. That seems to be uh, the, almost the dominant view now in our society. But I can't see, even though Westerners might buy into that concept, I can't see Moses saying to those in the wilderness, come on, guys, life's just a journey. It's not a destination. It's okay. You would never say that. Uh, there's something to the destination as well as to the journey. And that's sort of the main point of where the author of Hebrews is going this morning. I don't know about you, but I've, I've never been one who likes to run merely for the sake of running or to hike merely for the sake of hiking. If I'm running, it's because I'm trying to lose weight or because a wild animal's chasing me. 
If I'm hiking, it's because I have to get somewhere or I want to see something that's awesome. But just to hike, just for the sake of hiking has never been my, my thing. I remember I went hiking once uh, with a friend in New Hampshire up uh, Mount Monadnock. It's the, the, I think it's the most hiked mountain in the United States. And it's, it's uh, pretty difficult in normal weather. It's considered a difficult hike. You're just going straight up. Um, but in the wintertime, in the midst of snow, it's much, much worse. And I had a friend who brought me to go hiking. We left at 2 o'clock in the morning and uh, to go hiking in the dark for four hours so that I could see this awesome sunrise that he had promised me. And uh, so I have micro spikes on my boots. I'm hiking through four feet of snow half the time. Uh, my micro spike, I lose one of them, and I'm sliding and slipping and hitting my head on rocks and whatever else. But I'm finally getting up close to the top and then about a thousand feet away from the, the destination, uh, the, the, the top of the mountain is, is bald. There's no trees there. And the snow turns to sleet and it just starts to pelt you and it hurts really, really bad. Wind just whips up. That area, it's one of the windiest places in the world. And uh, so all of a sudden we're trying to hide underneath this rock boulder of some kind and wait it out, but it just gets darker, and it gets windier, and long story short, we ended up deciding to go back down the mountain. So I never ascended the summit, and I never saw that sunrise. At least Moses got to see the promised land, right? All that 40 years of hiking, he finally got to see the promised land. But you can't say the same for most of the Israelites who died down below in the desert after wandering around for 40 years on a hike, on a journey, who had never reached their destination. Well, the, the text this morning, the writer of Hebrews is continuing his argument from the previous chapter, showing us not only is Jesus greater than Moses, who did not in fact enter the promised land, but he's also greater than Joshua, who did lead Israel into the land of Canaan. And his, his entire argument of why Jesus is greater than Joshua is based upon his use of Psalm 95, of one word even that David uses in Psalm 95, and that word is today. He says, today, if you hear his voice, that is the voice of God, do not harden your hearts, as that first generation did and fell in the desert and failed to enter into God's rest. Now keep in mind, David wrote Psalm 95 about 400 years after Israel, the Israelites entered into the promised land. And yet David is implying by his use of the word today that there's still an opportunity for the generation who's living during David's time to enter into God's rest, even though they're already in the promised land. Does that make sense? So in other words, he's implying that there's a greater rest than the rest that Joshua led them into by bringing them into Canaan. His, his point is that the Spirit of God is still speaking to his generation the same way that he did in the wilderness, and you need to listen or else you will not reach your rest. And so now the author of Hebrews is picking up on that argument that David is making, if you will, in Psalm 95, and he's saying to his generation, today the Spirit is speaking to you in the same way that the Spirit was speaking to David's generation and then also to Moses and Joshua's generation. And so now, in the same way, I can use the Scripture to say today it applies to you, because the Spirit in every generation is saying, listen, do not harden your hearts, or else you will not enter into God's 
rest. Now, that might be a little bit confusing, so I'm going to try to break down his argument into three tenses, okay? So we're going to start out with the past tense, then move into the present, and then finally get to the future tense. The, the past tense basically is what, it, what does God's rest consist of uh, during the time of Moses and up to the time of the kings. Secondly, we'll get into the present tense to ask the question, how does one enter into God's rest today? And then third, the future tense, how does one ensure that he will enter into God's rest on the final day? So bear with me, we'll, we'll go along each step of the way. Number one, present tense, what did God's rest consist of, or excuse me, past tense, what did God's rest consist of in the beginning? In the latter part of verse 3 and into verse 4, the author of Hebrews connects the idea of the promised land to the concept of God's Sabbath rest in the beginning at the time of creation. If you remember, the first six days of creation are all recorded for us in chapter 1. And it sort of culminates with the creation of man. Now, if you were reading it in our English Bibles with our chapters and all those delineations, we would assume that man is the pinnacle of the creation week, but that's not true. You actually have to get to the next chapter, chapter 2, the first three verses, where you see the highlight of creation week is not man, but rather God's Sabbath rest. And, and the reason for that is because at that point, man and God together are celebrating God's good works in a perfect relationship with one another. In other words, in the beginning, everything is as it should be, and it's all good. God is on his throne and his people are enjoying his rest. That's sort of the point of where the author of Hebrews is making here by connecting these two things, showing this is a promised land. Eden is the promised land, right? Paradise on earth with God and man living together in perfect fellowship. Now, the purpose of the Sabbath day in the beginning was not, you have to understand, God didn't need to take a nap, right? So it's not like he was tired after creating everything in the first six days. After all, think about it, he didn't even lift a finger. He just said, let there be, and there was, right? So he's not exhausted here. That's not the purpose of the Sabbath day, but rather the purpose of the day is so that they can be refreshed in the enjoyment of all of God's good things, to reflect on all that God does well, all of his works and how they're perfect. God rests in the sense that he just stops creating. That doesn't mean that he stops working altogether. He still upholds the universe by the power of his word. He still guides everything in history, even from that day on. He's not taking a nap. He's not just sitting back and doing nothing. Uh, in fact, Isaiah 40, verse 28 says very clearly that the Lord does not faint or ever grow weary. He doesn't need a Sabbath rest because he's tired. In fact, in pagan religions, they'll actually teach that uh, sometimes uh, God's created, uh, these gods created men so that they could take a break. They were weary. They were worn out. That's not at all what God's Sabbath rest is. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of reflection to wonder and awe at the great works of God. Now, if you read chapter 1 and 2 closely, you'll see that the seventh day, this is of Genesis, you'll see that on the seventh day, it's missing a phrase that every other day uh, has at the end of the day. It'll say, and then there was evening, and there was morning, first day, second day, third day, fourth day, etc. But when you get to the seventh day, it doesn't say that. And so the assumption is that that day never ends. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it means that 
the, the point of the Sabbath day is so that they would continue to be in God's presence in his perfect fellowship, enjoying all of God's good works forever. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, they would be in an eternal Sabbath rest. That's the point. And again, that's where the author of Hebrews is going here. Now, you have to understand that this seventh day of rest, again, didn't imply that God didn't do any work. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 17, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are accusing him of breaking the Sabbath by healing a man on that day. And in that passage in John 5, 17, he says this, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And so again, it's not inactivity, but it's, it's an idea of he's just stopped creating so that now he can rejoice in his creation. I mean, just as an artist would step back and look at his painting and want to enjoy it, God is now rejoicing in that. Now, because Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they lose their rest. And from that point on, you even see with their descendants, like Cain, especially Cain is a wanderer on earth. It's the idea that he can't find a place to rest, right? They've been kicked out of their rest, but it's not merely because they lost the place, but it's because they lost that fellowship with God. They lost a right relationship with God. Uh, Blaise Pascal is a, a mathematician, theologian. He once said this. He said, there, there was once in man a true happiness of which there now remains to him only the, the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all of his surroundings, but these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. So when Adam and Eve lose fellowship with Christ, they're looking everywhere to find that filling, and they'll never find that rest apart from a restored relationship with him. And, and that's, that's the, the greatness of God's grace that he still offers the concept of a Sabbath rest in hope to rebellious sinners who have rejected that right relationship with him, have refused to submit to his authority. He still offers the hope of rest when we have no right to it. And so all, all throughout the Old Testament, we see this concept of the Sabbath rest as, a, as both a sign as, as well as a sense of great faithfulness on the part of God to continue to offer that to his people. In fact, the Sabbath day takes on new meaning after the Israelites come out of Exodus, after they're freed from their bondage unto Pharaoh. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, it's a second retelling of the Ten Commandments. It's a, re a retelling of it. Uh, in that passage, no longer is the Sabbath day only associated with creation and God's great works of creation but now it's also associated with God's great work of redemption. That when someone uh, seeks to enter into that rest, they're rejoicing in the completed work of God in creation and the completed work of God in redemption. He has saved. He has created and he has saved, past tense. And so it's meant to have us reflect upon that. It's because God's Sabbath rest is associated with the promised land that it's such a great judgment on the Israelites then not to enter into the promised land because in some ways it's symbolizing that they do not have the rest of God they will not have the Sabbath of God in that sense so that's that's sort of the past tense right now let's try to move into the present tense here but I still have to give you a little bit of history lesson I promise you we will get somewhere it'll take a minute but in the present tense how does one enter into God's rest today 
Here's the history lesson. Now, when Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land for the first time, we see, we read, that the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. This is great. There are two times in Scripture where it says God's good promises came to their fulfillment. Once is in the time of Joshua and once is in the time of Solomon. Both cases, they're based upon the rest that God gave them through these men. But what you'll, you'll see as you read through Joshua, especially toward the end, is that that rest only occurs as long as Joshua is living. And they're obeying their leader and looking to the Lord. The minute Joshua dies, they, stop worship, they stopped worshiping God. And they worship the Baals instead. And immediately God takes away their rest. Even though they're in the promised land, they no longer have rest because they've broken fellowship with God. And so the whole book of Judges is all about how they've lost their rest. These enemies have come in. These oppressors have come in. They've taken. They've stolen. They've squandered. They've oppressed them. No longer rest. And then what you'll see, though, is now there is a new association, not just with the land, but with a person a man who is a leader who as long as that leader is alive, they have rest. And so what you'll see again and again, again, just trying to give you a big picture here, uh, every one of these early judges, every time they're raised up, it'll say, and this judge lived so-and-so number of years, and during those years, they had rest, right? All right, next, next stage of the story, when they finally get to the time of wanting a king, they want a king because they want to continually enjoy the rest, but they want it in their way. They think, as long as we got the guy and he's here for us, we will keep our rest. But the one word that never occurs in all of Saul's reign is the word rest. What they had asked for, what they wanted, they could never get rest that way. And so God promises to give them a true king who represents him as a king after his own heart. And during David's reign, God promises to give his people rest, but it doesn't happen during his reign. Only a foretaste of it happens during his reign. Uh, because his whole reign, he's fighting against all these enemies because all the judges and everyone else, that they, they weren't walking in obedience. Toward the end of his reign, God promises David in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 9, this. He says, a son would be born to you who would be a man of rest. And the Lord would give Israel rest from all their enemies on every side when that son of David comes to the throne. And of course, we know his name is Solomon. Solomon means the, the man of rest. During his reign, there are no adversaries. There's no corruption. There's no misfortune, at least you know, the beginning part of it. There's, everything is as it should be. The Lord gives rest to all his people on every side. But again, we know Solomon doesn't uh, keep it. But even after he sinned because of God's promise, God didn't take away the people's rest until after he died because he's representing something that's coming in the future. Now, what does this have to do with our rest today? Now, finally, we're getting to the, the point. Present tense, rest. What Scripture consistently points out is that God's rest is not found merely in a place, but rather in a person. So even when Adam and Eve were in God's place of rest, they didn't have rest because they sinned. And then they were kicked out. So they're in paradise, but paradise itself did not give them rest. They could only find rest in a right relationship with God. And so every one of the, the judges, and Joshua included, Joshua and all the judges and all the kings, every one of them is pointing you to a human leader that can provide rest 
if God's blessing is upon them. None of them could give rest, but as long as he was there and obeying God, then God would give his people rest. Now, what's different here in the New Testament, all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene and he says something very unique that no judge, no king has ever said. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, he says this, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No judge had ever said that. No king had ever said that. Jesus says this, and he's using the very words of the Lord himself. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 14, the Lord says this to Moses. He says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. It's the presence of God that has to go with someone in order for them that, that they might have rest. In fact, we see this later on. The very language that Jesus is using is the same language that, Moses, that God uses to, to Moses in this sense. Later on, Jesus says, and wherever you go, I will go with you. Wherever you go, and you're spreading the gospel, I will go with you. It's through my going with you that you will have rest in the same way that God told Moses, wherever the Ark of the Covenant goes ahead of you, you will find rest. Go back and read it. This, this concept of rest is a huge theme in the Old Testament. And, and Jesus is saying, all of this is all pointing to me. Jesus is the Messiah King that all of these other kings were pointing to, the one in whom they could find rest. He is the true Son of David, the true man of peace. He is the one who is greater than Moses, because not only would he lead his people out of bondage to men such as Pharaoh, he's leading his people out of bondage to Satan and his kingdom. And he's greater than Joshua because he's not just giving them a temporary rest, he's giving them an eternal rest. Now, what does this have to do with the writer of Hebrews, his argument? Well, it's this. Again, if you remember, the reason why this letter is written is because there are some in the church, mainly from a Jewish background, who are tempted to go back to Judaism. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying something like this. Make your choice. Which Joshua are you going to follow? Are you going to follow the Joshua who can give you temporary rest? Are you going to follow the Joshua who can give you eternal rest? Again, if you remember, Joshua is the word in the Hebrew. In the Greek, it's what? Jesus. Jesus is the one who leads his people into the promised land. He is the one who leads his people into the rest. So again, that question has to be asked. Are you going to go back and look at Joshua? Who can only give you a temporary rest? Or are you going to look to Jesus who is the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest? He is the only one who can give that to you. And so we see that the author of Hebrews is saying in, in verse 3 of our text that we who have believed, that is we who have believed in Christ, we have now entered into that rest. Now, that's a very important point he's making because you'll, you'll notice in, in verse 2, look at back at verse 2, the author says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Notice he's using the word good news, the word gospel. He's saying they heard the gospel, but the gospel was not associated with faith. They didn't believe the gospel, and therefore they fell in the wilderness. So in the same way, the writer of Hebrews is saying that those who do not believe in the gospel of Jesus, those who walk away from Christ because they have not believed, he's saying they too will lose 
the hope of rest. So in that context, the, what does it mean to rest in the present tense? It's, it's resting in Christ's finished work of redemption on the cross. So just as, as, as God is expecting the Israelites in the Old Testament to look back on the finished work of creation and then the finished work of redemption out of Egypt, he's saying now look to Christ in the finished work of redemption for all eternity. The, the finished work of Christ on the cross. His blood is sufficient to satisfy the anger of God. If you want to have peace with God, you look to Christ. You trust in Christ. You rest in Christ. Which is the very reason why none of us are looking to pack all our bags and go buy a ticket and immediately move to Israel because we're looking for rest. It's not going to be found in Israel. In fact, Israel's volatile every year, is it not? You're not going to find your rest by going to Israel. You'll find your rest by going to Christ. Because Christ is the Lord of rest. You'll not find it anywhere else. And, and that's his point, is that these people are tempted to not look to Christ, but rather to look back to the Old Testament as a way of trying to earn something, to try to get their rest in that way. They're never going to get it that way. It'll only come through Christ. Because what, what Christ has done, in the same way that Moses leads the people out of Egypt, Jesus leads in triumphal procession all the believers out of the domain of darkness, out of the domain of the devil, and into the kingdom of light. It's a done deal in Christ Jesus. And so the reason why we're called to rest in that is that we rejoice in that and not in our attempts at trying to get there ourselves. It has to be resting in Christ's finished work on the cross. That's the present tense. But that's actually not his main point. His main point has to do with the future tense. And that has to do with the question, how can we then ensure that we will enter into the rest on the final day, the future rest? Now, the Old Testament prophets would continue to talk about this Messiah who is to come. And one of the ways in which they described his kingdom was a kingdom of rest. Notice Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. The prophet says this, he speaks of the last days in which the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. It is because of the promised land is associated with the person, with the leader of God's people. In this case, certainly Jesus, the Messiah. That's how you find rest. It's always going to be in him. Uh, so, uh, in the New Testament, he, he not only you find rest in the person, but then he leads you into the place. I'll give you two examples in Revelation. Revelation chapter 14. The Spirit says this, Blessed indeed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, that they may find rest from their labors. So in other words, the very thing that the Hebrews are fearing at this moment is the idea that they may potentially die for their faith in Christ. And what John is saying in Revelation is that there is now hope even for the dead who die in the Lord because they find rest from their labors in Christ Jesus. They know they have rest because they know that Christ is faithful as their Savior. On the other hand, though, again, the same way Cain is described as a wanderer, and if you remember, you're reading through Job, you see Satan, uh, when God asks where Satan has been, he's wandering around the earth to and fro, back and forth. He has no rest. When the same way, the way those who have rejected Christ are described in Revelation 
are the exact opposite. Instead of those who rest from their labors, this is, this is how John is, is given this revelation from God. He says, they will drink the wine of God's wrath and be tormented with fire and sulfur with the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever. And then the text emphasizes, and they will have no rest. Day or night, they will have no rest. See, rest is more than just inactivity. It's, it's being able to sit back and know the work has been done on my behalf. It's completed. It's finished. The, the Lord has saved. Nevertheless, verse 6, he's referring back to the Israelites who failed to enter the promised land again. This time it says because of their disobedience. Now, again, we know it started out well. We know that they, if you remember uh, during the plagues, that one of the final plagues, by some outward form of faith, they're taking blood from a Passover lamb and they're smearing it on the, the doorpost of their house. And they go out of, Israel, out of Egypt with all this gold and, and all of it starts out so well. Well, then how is it that they all ended up dying in the desert? Clearly, somehow, that faith was not a deep faith in Christ that led to obedience in their walk. Somehow they were missing something. And so the author's main point of this passage is there are those who start out well, seemingly, joining with the congregation, as in the congregation of the wilderness, joining the congregation in the New Testament. They profess the name of Christ, and yet they have not really trusted in Him. They've not really rested in Him. And therefore, they're the ones who walk away, and they're the ones who are misled. The author's main exhortation in this passage is found in verse 11. Look there, verse 11. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, that future rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, does it sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here? <laughs> I'm telling you to rest in Christ. That's what he's saying. But then on the other hand, he's saying strive to enter into your rest. Does it sound like they're competing? Now, here's what you need to understand. And this is where the Old Testament theology helps us understand it quite a bit. Now, if you remember when the Israelites came out of Egypt, and they, God purposely led them to the Red Sea, right? Purposely led them in front of a body of water where they're trapped. They have no weapons. They can't defend themselves. All the women and children are there in front of the sea. And the Lord says, wait. And you will see the deliverance of the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. And immediately... And he opens up the waters, they go through on dry ground, and the Lord causes the water to come in judgment upon the Egyptians. He says, do nothing, I will do it all. That is, in a sense, a picture of our justification, right? Of our salvation in Christ. Christ will save you, you just look to him and watch him work. He will do it all. But then you'll notice a change, a sea change happens, though, when they get on the other side, in the wilderness. He no longer says, just watch. What does he say? He says, pick up a sword and fight. Why? Because if God has already saved in the terms of justification, we're saved in Christ, he then causes us to follow that Lord, that King, that Conqueror, to take the land that he's given to us. He wants us to fight. He wants us to strive. He wants us to work, not to gain our salvation, 
but to take what's rightfully ours. In fact, uh, one of the passages in the Gospel of Matthew talks about it. It says those who will enter the kingdom of God, uh, they'll come in, 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 in this way in which they're breaking down the gates, if you will. Uh, they're striving to get in. They're fighting to get in because of their confidence, not in themselves, not because they don't know where they stand with God, but because they do know where they stand with God, because they know that they have the rest of God in Christ Jesus. They're fully confident in Christ, and that's what makes them follow Christ into the promised land. So again, in other words, it's because Caleb and Joshua believed that they fought. Does that make sense? Well, in the same way it is for us today, the writer of Hebrews is saying, be watchful, fear, lest you're one of those who say that you believe in Christ and yet you're not willing to fight the giants when they come. You have to be able to pick up the sword. You have to be able to strive because the striving and the fighting is evidence of your faith. That's not what earns you salvation, but it's evidence of your salvation that you're going to continue to fight against that sin. Continue to fight against the flesh, the world, and the devil. Continue to look to Christ because he is the conqueror who leads us into the promised land. Right? He has taken us out of Egypt, but now he's leading us as the conqueror into the promised land, but we have to go with him and fight with him. And then on the other side, the other side of that river, on Jordan's stormy banks, then he promises us complete and final rest. So what's his point? His point is basically this. If you have believed in Christ, rest in Christ. Trust in Christ. He is your salvation. No one else. You can't earn your salvation. It's a completed work. You celebrate the Sabbath day even to this day is to look back, what has Christ done for me? He has saved me. But because of that, the Spirit is now at work in me to fight, to strive, to work, so that I can continue to follow me. Just a couple passages to show you this more clearly in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and following, he says, train yourself for godliness, which holds promise for the present life and for the life to come, for to this end we toil and we strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all who believe. Notice, notice what he's saying. Because you have believed, because you have hope, because you have rested in Christ, now toil, now strive, now fight. And that's exactly how he ends his life, 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. What does he say? I have been resting in Christ all my life. He doesn't say that. Rather, what he says is, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept what? The faith. Faith is what God gives to us, but then the Spirit continues to work that faith in us that causes us to fight to fight against the ways of the world, to strive toward that final place of rest, knowing that our eyes are on the conqueror, the Savior who will lead us into it. It's not based upon me. It's based upon him. But my rest is with him. If he's going and he's fighting, I'm going with him and I'm fighting too. That's his point. May the Lord give us wisdom to see that and apply that to our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would continue to strengthen the faith that we have. We pray for those here who, who, who haven't expressed that faith, Lord, that you would give them an understanding of the gospel of Christ, 
of his sinless perfection and his shedding his own blood on the cross to pay the penalty for our rebellion against a holy God and King. Lord, help us to rest in the satisfaction of knowing that he has saved us from our sins by becoming that propitiation, by becoming that object of wrath in order that we might have peace with God. But in addition to that, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see now as believers how you are changing us from the inside out causing us by the power of the Spirit, leading us to have the mind of Christ that we might fight, that we might strive, that we might follow our Savior from here and to the gates of heaven and to the new Jerusalem. We pray these things in Christ's name.